Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We will continue forward in the book of Acts, chapter 17. Last week, we looked at heaven's heart towards idolatry. We saw Paul being provoked. And this week, we will see hell's heart toward the good news. I'll read from verse 10 through to verse 34 of chapter 17 of the book of Acts. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing... Him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings 
so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has (coughs) given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. amen. Please be seated. So today we'll look at the response, the response to the gospel here in this famous ancient city of Athens. Around 50 or 51 AD, Paul is there, as you recall, alone. This is very unique. He wouldn't usually minister alone. He probably didn't plan to minister alone, but he was provoked and he couldn't help it. And he went out and he preached the gospel in the Agora in the marketplace. Today we're going to look at the philosophers and we're going to think about them and that they encounter Paul and then they judge him and they judge the gospel and then they take him and go before the Areopagus. It's probably a council as we'll see. And we'll see that they challenge the gospel calling it a, a strange new doctrine. Speaking of new foreign gods. And in this context, we see the entire city is given over to a love of novelty and a constant searching for new things. And then, as usual, some questions to know and to love and to obey God more fully. You can always glance there at the map in your sermon notes to recall the, where we are in Paul's second missionary journey, having gone all the way through southern Galatia and Phrygia and made his way there to Troas, where he met Luke. And went across the Aegean Sea to Philippi because of the Macedonian call, the vision that he received, and the wonderful work of God there delivering that slave girl from her oppression, from the demon, delivering the Philippian jailer and bringing him and his household into the faith, and the great miracle there as he was locked with Silas in the heart of that prison. And God shook the thing and set him free. And then they, you know, he challenged the Roman leadership there. Hey, you can't do this to a Roman and made some progress for the gospel there in Philippi as a result. Leaving Philippi because of threats, he made his way to Thessalonica and had a good gospel experience there. 
But the Jews were particularly venomous from Thessalonica, so much so that he had to flee. But there were believers. Uh, There was a church planted. And he goes to Berea. And then the Jews from Thessalonica find out that he's preaching in Berea to these fair-minded people. And many of them believed because of their perspective on God's word. And the venomous Jews from Thessalonica come to Berea and threaten his life and run him off from Berea as well. And so when you read First and, Thess- First and Second Thessalonians, you see this theme of judgment that was discussed by Christ in Luke 21 and Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse and how these uh, Thessalonians are uh, building up the full measure of wrath upon themselves that was predicted. He flees Thessalonica, as we read today, and makes his way to Athens, leaving uh, Silas and Timothy behind. And so we, we see him uh, from last week, don't we? They're waiting, probably not planning to, to go and preach on his own because that was not his pattern. And that's why it says, while he waited, but he was provoked within himself. And remember, we looked at it last week. Are you provoked? Uh, it seems as though we probably don't love God like we should. We don't. Uh, cherish his ways like we should because we would probably have a great army of people stirred up in our spirits like Paul as we consider the world in which we live right now. Ohio is a state just enshrined the murder of babies in their constitution is a good example of why we could weep on our beds. So Paul has preached the gospel and now these philosophers come to him. I do want us to recall that this text in Acts 17 is a pivotal, a pivotal text when it comes to apologetics. The defense we're going to see him present uh, in, in the following weeks is a, is a pivotal text on the application of biblical apologetic principles. The principles are not necessarily stated by Paul, but they are expressed and we can learn from them. And it is good for us again this week to consider one of the key defining texts on apologetics as we move into today's text, just like we did last week. Next week's sermon is going to be a very basic primer on biblical apologetics, these background principles that we'll then see Paul put to use at the Areopagus. So 1 Peter three thirteen through 17. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? <clears throat> but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. As I said last week, what do we see some principles here? Apologetics is from this Greek word that means to give a defense, apologia. It's a verbal defense. It's speech in defense of something, and it's reasonable. It is a rational statement or argument responding to the challenges that have occurred as a result of evangelical work that precedes apologetics. In this context, these calls for us to defend the gospel will often come in the form of threats that will tempt us to turn away from God and to be fearful. And so the first thing that we see here is that we need to 
be holy people, having more fear of God than the fear of man, and that God is sanctified. God is set, us, set apart in our hearts. This is the pre-preparation, if you will, of the apologist, because these threats will cause us to close our mouths and not be prepared to give a defense, and it will tempt us to abandon defending the faith. Apologetic starts with a heart wholly given over to God. That's the point. And as we preach the gospel, if we're not prepared to face these threats, we think it's just going to be all roses and sunshine. We will not be prepared when the threats come and the resistance is in place. So there needs to be spiritual and mental preparation. If you plan to be an evangelist, you also need to plan to be an apologist as well. Because apologetics occurs as a response to questions or attacks. So apologetics by nature is a responsive act. And as I said last week, therefore, if we just launch into apologetic arguments for the faith, we may be acting prematurely. It is evangelism. It is sharing the basics of the gospel that is meant by God to stir up resistance or curiosity And then these questions come, and then the apologetic effort moves forward. So today's text describes the challenge to the gospel that arose from amongst the philosophers of Athens. We're going to look at it. And herein we see one of the phases in the general pattern of gospel ministry displayed to us. There are phases in gospel ministry. Part of being prepared is understanding that we go through phases with individuals, with towns, with cultures. And this challenge phase that we see today arises from sinful hearts. And see, this is a part of being a prepared apologist is you don't get into giving up biblical reality. You know the source of this challenge is ultimately a sinful heart caught up in self-deception and demonic deception. And Paul, the prepared Christian, expects and is ready for this phase of gospel ministry. He understands the human heart. He understands that all the sophistry and complexity of all of these uh, worldly ways of thinking are just smoke screens covering over self-deception. And the result of sin, irrationality, is the result of sin. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, we see some really important apologetic principles. And Paul, of course, knew these things. This was written from Ephesus in AD 55 by Paul back to the church at Corinth after he had received reports of some negative things going on and some difficulties in the church. And so he writes back to them from Ephesus. And this is about four or five years after today's text. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 
For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So Paul understood this as he's standing there alone in this stunning city at this time. Uh, some of the most wondrous structures that have ever been built and the number of beautiful things that had been constructed, this culture was intimidating. And he was there alone in the midst of it. But how could he do that? Because he really believed that the gospel is the power of God and that all of their sophistry would fall to the simple message of the gospel presented properly and in wisdom. Next, we see that apologetic defenses are to be made to anyone who asks. So we're not to pick and choose. We evangelize as many as we can, and then all who respond, we take the time to give them a response. This rules out favoritism. The Lord Jesus Christ builds his church. We don't pick and choose. Next, it is the hope within us that prompts others to ask about our faith. So we are a hopeful people. We live differently than the world by God's grace. And it is in this context that we have opportunity for evangelism. So by inference, our hope will be evident by our words and our lives. So apologists will be faithful. They'll be upright. And then we see that there are always solid reasons for the hope that is within us. There are rational, reasoned arguments that flow from revelation and rely upon the basic maxims, unprovable presuppositions that come to us from Scripture. Next, we see a call for the apologist to be humble. Defending the faith must be done humbly with meekness and fear and never out of pride. And we also see here that a good conscience is essential to biblical apologetics, which means being certain that you are forgiven and knowing the joy of forgiveness, and also that you have taken care in the midst of this very conversation that you're involved in to be meek and to be humble and to be courteous and to be a good listener. And good conduct is essential to biblical apologetics so that we are not bringing judgment upon ourselves for any sin or failure of our own, but that if there's any ugliness expressed to us, It is simply because we have identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think we can say that biblical apologetics is sanctified, courageous, prepared, responsive, generous, hopeful, faithful, rational, humble, forgiven, upright believers giving a defense for their faith. And there are some results that we should expect here. Those who revile such a biblical apologist, we are told they will be ashamed. And we see here that if the Lord wills, biblical apologists will suffer for doing good. And the doing good here is being an apologist the way that's being described. And it's far better to suffer for doing good as a biblical, biblical apologist than as one who does evil. 
So what happens when these philosophers come to Paul? We're told in the text, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. This word philosopher is a combination, the Greek word, of two other Greek words, which means friend. The two words are friend and wise. So this word technically means a friend of wisdom. And Strong's says these are those who are fond of wise things. They're called philosophers. And they're supposed to be friends of wisdom. It has come to mean one who's given to the pursuit of wisdom or learning. In a narrower sense, it's one who investigates and discusses the cause of things and the highest good. Brothers and sisters, human efforts to uncover wisdom lead to foolishness. We read it already. The world through wisdom did not know God. Yet in pride, fallen friends of wisdom ever continue to grope about in darkness thus becoming friends of foolishness. And it is very important for us to remember this as we engage with perhaps individuals who have multiple degrees, masters, PhD, and whose minds are incredibly brilliant and whose breadth of education is far broader than our own. Um, But if they have not the knowledge of God, then they are like these who grope in darkness. They are friends of foolishness. In general, to get a PhD, you have to present a new thesis. There's an example of a love for novelty that's even present and continues to be present. And it demonstrates to us that all forms of humanism, even whether they agree or disagree, pantheists, polytheists, atheists, whatever they may be, They end up at the same spot, obsessed with novelty. This word encountered, uh, the commentary says, the verb that Luke uses to describe the encounter between Paul and these philosophers is not a technical term for a philosophical discussion. This term that's sometimes translated as debated really means to throw together and thus often designates to bring together, to unite, to collect, to make a contract, or to contribute. In the latter sense, it can mean to contribute one's opinions to a discussion, which does seem to fit the context here. So the philosophers contribute their views to Paul's teaching about God's revelation and the necessary response of human beings. Thus, they converse with him, which is another meaning of this term. But it can be used in a negative sense as well. The term also can denote to bring people together in a a hostile sense, thus to be pitted against each other, to make someone contend with someone, to join in a fight or even to come to blows. And thus it could describe the philosopher's contentious challenges to Paul's teachings, which it does appear that's where we are in, in terms of what they say about him as we move forward. Most commentators assume a positive meaning here, although some suggest the negative meaning. So it may have been positive initially, but I think it did turn negative. And we can see that by how they describe him. Now, before we move into talking about the Epicureans and the Stoics, it's important, I think, to know that there were four major schools present. Athens, the philosophical center of the ancient world, was renowned for its four major schools. And each one was founded by a different philosopher. 
the Academy from founded in 387 BC of Plato. And then there's the Lyceum, 335 BC of Aristotle. And these last two now go along with the two philosophies that are presented in today's text. The Garden, which was founded in 306 BC by Epicurus and led to Epicureanism. And the Painted Porch of Zeno from 300 BC, which led to the Stoic, the Stoic school of thought. And the, this porch is a stoa, which is a, a Greek structure. It's like a grand hall or an outdoor colonnade. And that's where the word Stoic comes from, the stoa where they would meet. So let's learn about a little bit about Epicureanism and about Stoicism. Commentary tells us that the Epicurean believed that a naturalistic explanation of all events could and should be given. By their doctrine of self-explanatory naturalism, the Epicureans denied immortality, thereby declaring that there was no need to fear death. Moreover, whatever gods there may be would make no difference to men and their affairs. Epicurus taught that long-lasting pleasure was the goal of human behavior and life. Since no afterlife was expected, at death a person's atoms just dispersed out into infinite space, human desires should focus on this life alone. And in this life, the only genuine long-term pleasure was that of tranquility, being freed from disturbing passions, pains, or fears. To gain such tranquility, one must become insulated from disturbances in this life, interpersonal strife, disease, Concentrating instead on simple pleasures like a modicum of cheese and wine or some conversation with friends and achieving serenity through the belief that gods never intervene in the world to punish disobedient behavior. Indeed, whatever celestial beings there are, they were taken merely as dreamlike images who in deistic fashion care nothing about the lives of men. And so one of the philosophers wrote, there's nothing, one of the Epicurean philosophers wrote, there's nothing to fear in God. There's nothing to be alarmed at in death. So you can see uh, what a different message the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is. And that these Epicureans would have no framework through which to receive the message of the gospel. They are materialists. <clears throat> they believe that all that matters <clears throat> is the material world. Now, they do admit to the likely existence of an in invisible world. But they're naturalists. So they have no concern for a creator or for a sustainer. The idea of that to them is unnecessary. The Epicureans, uh, another commentary tells us, believe that the cosmos is the result of accident. They are also annihilationists. And this is a, a school of thought where folks believe that they just cease to exist when they die. And therefore, there's no need to fear death. There are even some Christian schools of thought in certain branches of the church that teach that the lost do not suffer forever in hell. They just cease to exist upon death. We know this is not true. The Epicureans are hedonists. They are devoted to pleasure. And there's really no such thing as sin. Sin is not a part of their consideration. And if they're 
if there really, if there are some gods, they are distracted. And so there's no need to fear judgment. The gods are as caught up in pursuing pleasure as the Epicureans would have everyone be as well. They don't have time for judgment, these meaningless gods. So they don't see any need for a redeemer of any sort. They don't see sin or judgment coming their way. So really we can say that Epicureanism is a polytheism of irrelevant gods. And it leads to the belief in transcendence, but it's meaningless. It's meaningless transcendence. It doesn't matter. And there's zero eminence of these gods. Of course, in Christianity, we know God's trans- transcendence uh, and his eminence are brought together in ways that are beautiful and non-contradictory. Commentary says the gods live an undisturbed life of happiness without interfering in the affairs of the world through providence. So this was the Epicurean school of thought. They were like agnostic secularists, another commentary tells us. Nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death. Good pleasure can be attained and evil pain can be endured. So the Epicureans, polytheistic, materialist, naturalists, annihilationists, devoted to pleasure with no understanding of sin or of a creator or a sustainer or a redeemer or a judge. Next, the Stoics. Commentary says, Stoic physics explains the world in materialistic and deterministic ways. The world consists of material objects whose interactions are controlled by always valid laws or fate. God is present in the material world as the active principle, acting on matter, the passive principle, and is thus physically present in all matter as what they call the designing fire or as spirit. Nothing has existence outside the material world and its principles. There is no spiritual world, contrary to Plato. Everything happens according to providence, which they call fate, for the good of the world, which means that evil does not exist. Illness and disasters are just part of fate and are providential for the well-being of the cosmos. They insist that nothing except virtue is good and that emotions are always bad. Stoics appeal both to nature and to reason. Human beings find happiness when they live in agreement with nature, which is the same as living in agreement, they say, with reason. Happiness does not depend upon attaining the things that are good, such as health and wealth, but on making the right choices that we have the power to make thereby applying reason to our judgments. Negative emotions, such as fear or grief, are false judgments about the world. Happiness is found in being without passions, which can be achieved by accepting matters that are out of our control as being part of nature, and thus they become self-sufficient, they would say. So these are pure materialists, unlike the Epicureans. There is no spiritual world. There is no unseen world. They do believe in a God idea, and God is just simply the active force within the material world. So this is pantheism. There's no distinction between God and creation. 
And this is therefore a denial of transcendence and a meaningless eminence that they embrace. There's no good or evil. There's no sin. There's no final judgment. There's no need to fear death. And they are rationalists. And for them, reason is the highest good and emotions are bad. So when we look at Paul's message to them at the Areopagus and the things that he says, understanding this, you'll be able to see that the the biblical worldview, that is reality, has remained undiscovered by all the philosophers of the ancient world. And they indeed are doing nothing but groping in the darkness and finding nothing but more and more foolishness. So think of their worldview, and here's their response after they've heard the gospel. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So this word preaching, this is the word for evangelist. He's giving them the good news of Christ the Messiah who has died for the sins of his people and had victory over death and brought all who trust in him into eternal life. And instead of believing and trusting, they see Paul as a babbler and they bring a kind of an accusation against him. Given their polytheistic and pantheistic worldviews that denied the most high God as creator, sustainer, and judge, and that also rejected sin and final judgment, these men saw no need for forgiveness or for redemption and had no sense that they needed a redeemer of any sort. Their worldviews really had no frame of reference to rightly understand Paul's gospel preaching. So they are groping in the darkness as God brings to them his eternal wisdom. He brings it near. The light is shining in their presence. But they're blind. They cannot see it. So what do they do first? They judge Paul. We see they initiate an ad hominem attack against Paul. Ad hominem means against the man. Rather than dealing with the argument itself. And the purpose of this is to question his credibility and therefore to undermine the message by questioning the credibility of the messenger. They call him a babbler. This Greek word uh, has a number of meanings. First of all, literally it means to pick up seeds. So this is the kind of thing that a bird would do, like a crow that picks up grain out in the field. So they're comparing him to a bird just kind of wandering around aimlessly picking and, and grabbing this here and there. As applied to an individual, it was someone who would lounge about the marketplace and pick up a substance by whatever may, what chance to fall from the loads of merchandise. So it brings to idea the, uh, uh, the mind the idea of a beggar, um, someone who's vile, even a parasite. So they're calling him, if you will, a philosophical parasite. And also, this person might be a clown, uh, someone who gets a living by flattery and buffoonery. So it's a very disrespectful word. And it is, it is a word that means an empty talker, a babbler. <coughs> Pastor Kaiser, in one of his sermons, says the Greek word for babbler is literally seed picker, and it refers to a person who does not seem consistent, 
A seed picker is an insulting name that refers to a person who picks up a stray idea here in one place and another idea from another place and kind of puts it together and forms this inconsistencies. It didn't seem consistent to speak of a transcendent God who is also personal. One God, but more than one person and other things that they would have found in their minds inconsistent. What Luke goes on to show in verses 19 through 20, though, is that the Athenians are really the seed pickers who are always looking for something new to listen to. These descriptions could just as easily be given of many university professors, intelligent, but eternally skeptical, always just looking to poke holes in everything outside of their own worldview. So, a lesson, if you're going to be prepared to walk in the phases of gospel work, you should expect, expect ad hominem attacks from those bound up in the wisdom of the world. Expect it. Don't let it surprise you. Be prepared for it. Don't take it personally. Don't allow them to rile you up with their seed picker insults. And Paul didn't. Before, God, before conversion, and this will help us be compassionate, before conversion, the gospel will be simple gibberish to those who are outside of Christ. It will be nonsense to their ears. And they will therefore, if you will, in the natural sense, they'll question the intelligence of the preacher. What's wrong with you? What is this nonsense you are saying? So being a prepared apologist is to expect these types of misunderstandings, and ad hominem attacks, because if the Lord does not open their minds and hearts to believe the word, then they will respond from the flesh in these ways. And we should expect that. And we don't know, do we, as someone is coming with these questions, is this them coming to life in Christ, or is this just rebellious resistance? We don't know, do we? Eventually we'll know, but initially we don't. Next. They judge not only Paul, but they judge the gospel and introduce potential threat into Paul's life. It's not obvious, but I do believe it's a potential threat. They speak of foreign gods, and it may be that they were thinking of Jesus and resurrection as two foreign gods. Bonson says they apparently viewed Paul as proclaiming a new divine couple. Jesus, a masculine form that sounds like the Greek easis and resurrection, a feminine form being the personified powers of healing and restoration. This strange deity is amounted to new teaching in the eyes of the Athenians. Accusing Paul of being a propagandist for new deities was an echo of the nearly identical charge brought against Socrates four and a half centuries earlier. <clears throat> it surely turned out to be a more menacing accusation than the name seed picker. As introducing foreign gods, Paul could not simply be disdained he was also a threat to Athenian well-being. And that is precisely why Paul ended up before the Areopagus Council. <clears throat> and that makes sense according to other things, other historical pieces of evidence about this council that was present there in Athens. So prepared apologists will expect the gospel to be misunderstood and misrepresented. They will also expect uh, ad hominem attacks as well. The philosophers view Paul as an intellectual scavenger, in summary, who is introducing a strange new set of ideas and gods. 
So they would view Paul as a potential threat to the well-being and peace of Athens. And we should note here that the gospel always threatens non-Christian societies. And so gospel preachers will face attacks and scrutiny. The gospel always threatens non-Christian societies, not with violence and revolution, but with a complete and total change of the structure of the society. Economic, financial, political, it all changes. So what happens next? They took him and brought him to the Areopagus. This word, took him, is to lay hold of, to take possession of, to seize upon with the hands, to lay hold of something. Commentary says, while this verb can denote an arrest, it often has the meaning of take hold of without the connotation of violence. As the council questions Paul about the new teaching concerning foreign ideas that he presents to the Athenians, it seems apparent that he was not arrested. Rather, he was being investigated concerning the foreign gods that he seems to be introducing to the population, an endeavor for which he may need official permission but which they may choose to refuse to grant. So he wasn't quite arrested, but they did take him. And it does denote putting hands on somebody. <clears throat> so he goes with them. Remember, he's alone. He's by himself as far as we can make out. Where do they take him? They take him to the Areopagus. It's actually two words in the Greek, and it means a martial peak. And it is a rocky height in the city of Athens opposite the western end of the Acropolis, which is another uh, height toward the west of the Acropolis. But it's not likely that there was a meeting that took place on Mars Hill for, for this conversation. We don't know for sure. But the comment, or Bonson says it literally means the Hill of Ares or Mars Hill. However, his referent is not likely a geographical feature in the local surrounding of the Agora. The Council of the Areopagus was a venerable commission of ex-magistrates which took its name from the hill where it originally convened. In popular parlance, its title was shortened simply to the Areopagus. And in the first century, it had transferred its location to the Stoa Basileus, or the, that is the royal portico. And that was in the city marketplace, the Agora where the Platonic dialogues tell us that Euthyphro went to try his father for impiety and where Socrates had been tried for corrupting the youth with foreign deities. Apparently, the council convened on Mars Hill in Paul's day only for trying cases of homicide. That Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and we see that in verse 22, <clears throat> and went out from their midst, we're told in verse 33, is much easier understood in terms of his appearance before the council than his standing on the hill. So it helps set the scene for us, and it's reminiscent, is it not, of him being before other worldly institutions uh, during his travels. Um, about this council, it was a small but powerful body, probably about 30 members, whose membership was taken from those who had formerly held offices in Athens, which were open only to aristocratic Athenians because it was expensive. This council was presently the dominating factor in Athenian politics, and it had a reputation that was far and wide. Cicero had written that the Areopagus assembly governed the Athenian affairs of state. 
They exercised jurisdiction over matters of religion and morals, taking concern for teachers and for public lectures in, the, in Athens. And so Cicero once induced the Areopagus to invite an itinerant philosopher to lecture in Athens. A dispute exists over the question of whether the Areopagus may have had an educational subcommittee before which Paul likely would have appeared instead of being before the entire Areopagus. But either way, the council would have found it necessary to keep order and to exercise control over lectures that were being given in the Agora. Since Paul was creating something of a disturbance, he was brought before the Areopagus council for an explanation, even if not for a specific examination, not as if he was requesting a license. The mention of the Areopagus is one of many indicators of Luke's accuracy as a historian as well. According to Acts, therefore, just as Paul is brought before the strategoi at Philippi, the politarchi at Thessalonica, the anthupatas at Corinth, so at Athens he faces the Areopagus. The local name for the supreme authority is in each case different and yet accurate. So I hope that we will note here this principle that prepared apologists will not only expect ad hominem attacks and misrepresentations of the gospel, but they will also expect to be brought before human institutions of power to explain the good news of Jesus Christ. Expect to face intimidating, intimidating situations. Powerful, wealthy people holding the reins to systems of power that can be used against you. Next, we see these philosopher challenge, philosophers challenge Paul's strange new doctrine. It says, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. So this is essentially, if you will, the not quite a charge, but the question that's laid before him as he's called to give his defense before the Areopagus. This idea of strange is something shocking, something astonishing. It is a novelty. It's something new. And so, you know, they like that which is new. And it is something that's being taught. And that's what Paul did. He taught something that was shocking to them, that was new for them. So we do see here, and this will be important to note when we get into the principles of apologetics next week, that Paul's gospel is entirely new to these philosophers and to the people of Athens. They do enjoy novelty, but they're also being cautious. We can tell Paul did not feel the need to find and utilize common ground with them. Paul understood their worldview, and he spoke the truths of the gospel into their worldview as a proclaimer of divinely revealed truth. He reasoned from revelation. He did not leave revelation out. He preached the gospel, bringing forth revealed truths first. Commentary says, by this it should seem that among all the learned books they had, this is Matthew Henry, they either had not or heeded not the books of Moses and the prophets, else the doctrines of Christ would not have been so perfectly new and strange to them. I mean, think about all the, this is just me now, not the commentary. Think, think about all the books they had in all the books they pursued. Apparently, they weren't so interested in the Old Testament. This would not have been shockingly new to them if they had read the Old Testament. 
Back to Matthew Henry. There was but one book in the world that was of divine inspiration, and that was the only book they were strangers to, which, if they would have given a due regard to it, would, in its very first page, have determined that great controversy upon them about the origin of the universe. They say to Paul that they want to know what these things mean. So they're able to perceive in some fashion that their own current understanding of Paul's words is yet insufficient for them to know what this new teaching actually means. They're still struggling with putting it together. Matthew Henry says they desired to know more of it only because it was new and strange. May we know what this new doctrine is or is it like the mysteries of the gods to be kept as a profound secret? If it may be, we would gladly know and desire thee to tell us what these things mean, that we may be able to pass a judgment upon them. And this was a fair proposal. It was fit they should know what this doctrine was before they embraced it. And they were so fair as not to condemn it till they had some account of it. So note here, even in the midst of being challenged, a wise apologist will be grateful for the interest and the opportunity to speak more of God and his glory and his salvation in Christ. So gratitude will, will replace fear and eagerness will replace the hesitancy associated with fear. <clears throat> and so Paul dives right into this. He's so, you can tell he's so ready and eager to give a defense. Well, what's really going on in Athens? The text says, for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time, listen now, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. This is a total cultural obsession with novelty. The text says they spent their time in nothing else. This is the urge of the fallen human heart throughout every century, throughout every millennia. This is where we end up whenever we're groping in the darkness, depending upon human wits and human abilities, is this love for novelty. And so their love of novelty creates an excitement surrounding Paul's message. But we need to remember that their love of novelty arises from their lost state. Seems like <clears throat> blind hogs rooting for a new treat from the dirt. They dig ever on for new satisfactions. Finding God and his truth as undesirable jewels that they pass by and instead go for other things. Commentary says they spent their time in nothing else and a very uncomfortable account those must needs have to make of their time who thus spend it. I believe there's a word here for us uh, regarding time. Time is precious and we are concerned to be good husbands of it because eternity depends upon it and it is hastening apace into eternity but abundance of it is wasted in unprofitable converse. To tell or hear the new occurrences of providence concerning the public in our own or other nations and concerning our neighbors and friends is of good use now and then. But to set up for newsmongers and to spend our time in nothing else is to lose that which is very precious for the gain of that which is worth little 
in this section, we'll see the wise apologist does not assume interest arises from true wisdom. Uh, they will still move in and speak, but they will not be unwisely assuming that this is a person who's truly hungry for tr- truth. Maybe they are, maybe they are not. <clears throat> Paul was certainly aware that the Athenian culture was devoted to novelty. So some questions for us to consider. Let's think about the wisdom of this world. Let's consider that. You understand that all the wisdom of the world that's in view is based upon human ability and it is a groping in the darkness. Do you understand that all of this type of groping leads to various ways of denying sin, denying origins, denying judgment, denying the need for a redeemer. You know, we can see the distinctions between these two schools of thought, and yet in the end, they end up at the same spot. Darkness and groping and under God's judgment and given over to irrational thought and controlled by sin. Do you understand that such individuals like you and I used to be suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They devote their lives to self-deception. <coughs> Greg Bonson speaks of this like a sitting on a beach ball in a swimming pool. And the beach ball is that which is supporting you and keeping you above the water. And all the while you're saying, there's no such thing as beach balls. This is the utterly irrational reality of the atheist of the worldly philosopher. They're using all the tools of the Christian worldview, all the tools of reality to deny the existence of God, to create a new reality. We as wise apologists know this. We understand this, and we do not give way to their demands to abandon reason, to their demands to abandon revelation. We do not do this. We go in with revelation, the word of God, the truth of God. And when we respond as an apologist, we continue with the truth of God. Next. Do you expect the lost with whom you deal to display self-deception and to misunderstand and reject the gospel and even think negative things about you? You should expect this. And not like you're trying to make it happen. But this is what happens when a lost soul is exposed to the gospel. Next, do you expect to draw the ire of humanists? And I know humanist isn't a biblical term, but it's really a description of all those who are lost. It is a description of all those who are lost because their view of reality is based on their own wits and their own observational skills and their own abilities. And they'll reach various different conclusions about the purpose of reality, but... All of it is based on human effort, human understanding. And the question is, do you expect when you preach the gospel in this world and bump into the lost that you will be brought into their crosshairs? Do you expect this as a wise apologist? Do you expect to be personally ridiculed when you publicly proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you are ridiculed, will you stomp away and shake the dust off of your feet too soon 
Or will you do the work of an apologist beforehand? Do you see what I mean? We cannot be hasty in believing that God has brought his judgment upon a particular person or culture. Have we done the work of an apologist? Do you expect to be brought before seemingly, apparently profound and powerful human institutions? Do you expect to experience the intimidation of this world as one who loves Christ and speaks his gospel? You should be reminded of the, the apostles and how amazed they were with the temple. And what did Jesus tell them? Not one stone will remain. How will you respond to the resistance, the attacks, and the threats, and the marginalization that will be a part of being an evangelist? I think of our dear brother, Steve Smith, and I think he is set before us as a really good example of an evangelist who's also a wise apologist. Pray for him and his upcoming lawsuit against those who have mistreated him and um, under the color of law um, come against him in the gospel. Next, have you set the Lord apart in your heart? The other day I wrote a prayer. And the prayer said something like, Lord, forgive me for loving football more than I love you. Forgive me for having more excitement in my heart about Saturday than I do about Sunday. What could you write? What prayer could you write where you find a greater affection in your soul for something other than God? I mean, we're to love our spouses, right? God calls us to Christian love. But do you idolize your spouse? Maybe you need to write that prayer. Lord, forgive me for loving my spouse more than I love you. For being more excited uh, about time with them than I am about time with you. I think you see what I mean. These are questions that help you see, diagnose your soul to see whether you have sanctified the Lord in your heart. Because our souls are little idol-making factories. And the glorious good news is that Jesus not only delivers us from the power of our sin that would send us to hell and, and deserve judgment, but he also delivers us from the power of our sin that is seeking to rule us every single day. And he will grant to us pure hearts. He will grow us up to be those who walk in his ways and love him. Connected to this, do you think that you are meek and humble? You know, this meekness that says he must increase and and I must decrease. You know, one of the ways that you can spot this is your response to being mistreated. Your response to being mistreated. Think about someone who's mistreated you, especially within your family. You know, that's where we tend to get mistreated the most often because that's where we spend the most time. And ponder your response to being mistreated. Um, And, you know, do you have a meek and humble response, a compassionate and tender and forgiving response? Or do you bow up and demand your rights and get the how dare you attitude? Um, so that's another, that's a way you can check and see whether meekness and humility are, are being wrought in you by the Lord or not, is your response to being mistreated. Next, 
do you see yourself um, as able to give a courteous and rational reply even in a difficult situation that would require courage? Think of your workplace. Think of fellow students. How would you respond in that situation? Next, do you find yourself easily drawn into the love of novelty? You know, a question you could ask is, how often do you get lost scrolling on your Facebook page just looking for the next thing? Um, And if you're not on Facebook, praise God for that. Uh, But I do think we see an example of this human love for novelty that can be used to control our behavior. Next, like Paul, are you provoked in spirit when you see the idolatry that has consumed the world around us? When you see the outcome of obeying and following sin and the prince of darkness, that those who hate God love death, and that there are states with whom we are covenantally attached in our federal union who have in their constitution made it a requirement for babies, for it to be legal to murder babies in their state. These nonsense claims that we can decide whether we are a man or a woman. These hateful ideas that are put forth, hateful towards God and his ways and his creation. Will you be able to stand alone before the humanistic world like Paul did? Are you prepared to stand alone? Because if you're provoked in spirit by these things, you may find yourself in a situation where you're going to speak the truth of God's word. You're going to be unable to remain silent. And will you be prepared to stand before a world lost in sin like Paul did? Next, going further back in the title of today's sermon, Hell's Response to Good News. Are you aware of the unseen demonic, demonic and angelic powers at work as you evangelize, as you are hoping to continue as an apologist? Preparation will involve prayers that understand the nature of the battle that understand the enemy and understand Christ's power and victory. Some come out only by fasting and prayer. Next, and finally, tracing it back to its, I think, deepest root, is it the love of Christ that compels and controls you? Because that's what provoked Paul, was his love for Christ. What stirred up his spirit were these insults to the great and glorious Most High God and his desire to see the lost delivered from this world of ugliness and sin and death that they were caught up in. Are you like that? Is that what's going on? Is that what motivates you? Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, How we thank you, Lord, for the salvation that you have granted to us in Christ our Lord. 
We rejoice in Christ uh, as the perfect evangelist, the perfect apologist, demonstrating to us, Lord, love for your glory and for your ways, in meekness and in humility and in courage. Lord, we thank you also for the example of Paul here laid before us in Athens. Bless us, Lord, to be pondering, meditating upon these things, comparing ourselves to Christ and to Paul. As we examine ourselves, Lord, bless us with repentance. Bless us to be changed, we ask, that our minds would be renewed with these truths and that we would be transformed in the likeness of Christ. Those whose lips are always overflowing with your praise and whose minds are given over to your word and to a rational defense of the faith and whose hearts are broken and contrite and humble before you and filled with courtesy and love as we communicate the gospel in this world. Oh, Father, conquer your enemies, we pray. Throw down the forces of darkness, we ask. Bring to nothing the arrayed and um, raised up powers of death that are present in this world and, and cause your church, we ask, O oh God, to rise up in love towards Christ and in service to you in all of these beautiful ways. In Jesus' name, amen.